deprivation process? Should we just keep our focus on pre-deprivation process? I don't think you should keep it solely on pre. I think. Okay, explain, explain then. Because I think that the body of case law is is clear that you have to look at you know the the body of it. What is given to them up to and including the potential point of deprivation. So for one example, I think the the uh, pre-deprivation fraud questionnaire, the district court concluded that they, it lacked certain information. We think that the record contradicts that, that it does contain the exact information that the district court said it lacked. But I think that even if the district court were correct, it overlooks the fact that I think the, the requirements of due process are less rigorous at an early investigative stage. Last year, this court decided um, Cunningham v. Blackwell. I believe Chief Judge Sutton and Judge Batchelder were both on that case. And you'll recall that some uh, professors were suspended from performing clinical work while the dental school uh, investigated possible fraudulent activity with respect to medical data. And this court held that that partial suspension pending a further investigation did not stri- strike a disheartened eye as unfounded or unfair. And so here when we're looking at the uh, questionnaires, it's much earlier in the process than any uh, suspension. The agency is simply asking for additional information to analyze and use in reaching uh, a future decision. And if these plaintiffs or any claimant are aggrieved by that decision, then they would have the right to protest that and receive a full evidentiary hearing and have appeal rights before it becomes what, final. What you, it seems it's somewhat strange to me that we're talking about the contents of the forms when, at least with respect to two of the plaintiffs, who um, the reason why um, they weren't they didn't know wasn't uh, didn't know about this um, claim of fraud isn't because of the insufficient contents of the forms. It's because they never received the forms because they had moved. So how should we analyze um, whether your mailing um, to the address you had on file was sufficient to put them on notice? I think the, the issues with the, the mailing and what address it, it sent it to are uh, more issues or more complaints that plaintiffs have made about the system, generally speaking, the MIDAS system, whereas the focus here on these two specific defendants is what role did they play. And as far as I know, there is no allegation, there's no uh, evidence that has been produced during discovery that either one of these defendants uh, developed the mailing process uh, or uh, approved it. But what, I do what think is the um, I, I suppose your response would be, well, they have a duty to, to keep their address on file, and that seems perfectly reasonable to me to say, if you're getting benefits from us, it's your duty to keep your address on file. But their response would be these mailings happen many years after their benefits expired. So what is, I, I don't even understand, is the process you just send it to the last known address and um, at the time um, the agency thought that was sufficient? Sure, you're, you're right that the that the plaintiffs or any claimant does have an obligation to keep their address current. Because again, recall, they're saying, they, they are the ones who provide an address, say, we would like to receive communications by mail, please send them here. Or we would like to receive them electronically, please send them to this Email address. Do you have any any guidance that says you have a duty to keep the address updated? Yes, the, several years after the fact. The, the handbooks that they are provided to each claimant they're in the record uh, here at four sixty document four sixty one dash thirty three, um, page four 
page ID 28854 and 28856 are a couple of examples. So number one, it tells claimants you must keep your address and phone number current. It also says that issues, including fraud, may arise on your claim up to six years after you receive benefits. So I believe that is putting them on notice, number one, of their obligation to provide correct contact information, but also to keep it current because you may be receiving information or issues may arise on your claim several years after the fact. I also want to talk about... Can I just ask one other quick question? This hasn't been raised by the parties, but I don't know if you know our Johnson v. Jones line of cases about interlocutory appeals and summary judgment. I don't know if that's ringing a bell for you, but the gist of it is that one can't bring an interlocutory appeal and just ignore what the facts are. You have to construe the inferences in favor, in this case, of the plaintiff. Since they've not raised the issue, you haven't had a chance to respond, and I just want to make sure you're... Are you in agreement that all the inferences have to be run in their favor? Yes, but the inferences, I think, must be reasonable, at least supported by the record. And I don't recall that case specifically, but I am aware of the limitations of interlocutory appeal. Judge Murphy, I think you've wrote extensively on this issue over the last few years. And so if the crux of a party's disagreement on appeal is a factual one, then I agree that this court would lack jurisdiction over that issue. And that's why I'm trying to focus on the legal arguments here, because I don't want this to be perceived as quibbling with what the district court said the evidence showed or what inferences it draws. We've tried to point out that conclusions reached by the district court lack record support or that the summary judgment record does not create a genuine dispute on a material fact. I believe that is a legal question. This court held that in 2021 in Decrane v. Eckhart. So I am aware that I don't want to present a factual dispute here. I do want to talk a little bit as well about the fraud determination notices. And again, I think the error that the district court committed here was, again, focusing on that loan document and overlooking the entire package of information that would have been sent to a claimant at the same time. The fraud determination was not sent in isolation. It should not have been analyzed in isolation. Can you switch briefly, I guess? You suggested at the outset that our prior published opinion said that the plaintiffs had an obligation to prove the allegations in the complaint. But we did also say that the complaint alleged clearly established violations of the due process clause. So what allegations do you think the complaint alleged that we found showed a clearly established violation have not been adequately proved at this stage? Because that would seem to be the critical way to distinguish our prior opinion under your view. It's somewhat difficult to answer only because the allegation was so broad. And similarly, the district court defined the right to due process at the broadest and most general level, which the Supreme Court and this court has said you cannot do, especially when it comes to due process, because it is so fact-intensive and fact-specific that different circumstances call for different process. And so here, neither the district court nor the plaintiffs have identified 
a similar enough case, and I'm not suggesting that an identical case is required, but a similar one with notices that contain similar language, um, it is beyond debate that they are unconstitutional. In a case about notices, a case about computer notices, what's the case? A case about notices. So in other words, the the content of the fraud determination in conjunction with the eligibility determination and the list of overpayments, that those taken together do not contain uh, due process. And in fact, if I may finish I might agree with you. I might agree with you, just, but, but... is it, isn't that analysis inconsistent with our prior opinion? I, I, that's the, what I'm struggling with. Is uh, arguably our prior p- opinion said it was at the level of generality that was fine, but at least the complaints allegations and the complaints allegations included the uh, idea that these notices violated due process. So what has changed between the pleading stage and the discovery? Ch- well, as, uh, as a, may I finish? The, yeah, yeah, go, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, as the district court even said, a generous discovery period has happened in between. So, when we're looking at a motion to dismiss, right, the court's focused on what is alleged, what's plausible. We now have a summary judgment record; they have to to prove it. So, if the allegation is that these forms provide insufficient notice, well, that's a legal question, a legal determination whether or not the contents of them. So, discovery would have produced. Um, the forms at, at issue, the district court would have uh, reviewed that evidence and, and analyzed them. The problem is that it didn't, it, it just defined it so broadly, it didn't look at specific cases to say, yes, this body of case law shows that these forms violate a clearly established right. And I think that the body of case law actually shows the opposite to be true, including cases cited uh, by plaintiffs. Um, I see that I'm out of time. Yeah, well, you'll get your full rebuttal. So thank you. Thank you much. so much, Mr. Ernst. Good morning, Your Honor. It's made it please the court. Kevin Ernst appearing on behalf of the plaintiffs. Your Honor, the, the MIDAS system that went into effect basically sacrificed the uninsurance uh, claimants' procedural rights, procedural due process rights, in favor of um, exp- expedient and efficient, quote-unquote, bureaucratic findings for fraud determinations. The problem started with the questionnaires, which, by the way, we had the questionnaires when we filed the complaint. So the exact language of the questionnaires and the the generic fraud determinations were included in our complaint, which this court previously ruled was clearly established. We, I should say, this court previously ruled that we demonstrated that the due process rights that we were um, alleging were clearly established. So, I was just going to say, I mean, we have all these, <laughs> these cases all start the same way. Um, motions to dismiss are discouraged in qualified immunity cases. We, we think you should have discovery. This, of course, was a class complaint, so it was written even potentially more broadly. When you look at the cases that we invoked last time, you know, there are cases that say you have a property interest. That's not the debate here. Um, they're really 
not cases that go to this issue, I would say. Now, that seems okay at the motion to dismiss stage because you don't quite know it's anything plausible that could come out of this complaint. And the point of discovery sometimes is to refine the complaint. Um, it's no longer a class case. Um, so what is the clearly established case? Like, give me your best case. What is the case that we should say, yeah, any, anyone working in government would know you couldn't do this? Well, I have several, Your Honor. Um, well, just give me your best one. Because when I hear several, it's usually okay. a laundry list of all I could find in the brief. I just want to know, you, like the one when you say, if I'm talking to someone about why we should win this case, I always mention it because there's just no way around it. I would say that the Crosby case is probably the the most analogous. It involves unemployment seven claims. Isn't that Seventh Circuit? It is a Seventh Circuit case. Was that in, was that invoked in our last opinion? I believe so. Yes. Where I'm looking. I mean, it was. I'm, I'm looking. I, at I argued it in the brief. I don't know that. It's not. It's not in the clearly established section of our opinion. Okay. So we haven't we haven't said Crosby's the law in the circuit. So if but, Crosby's the best one, we have to decide if Crosby applies, right? That's correct. But your honor, with regard to the to the notice claims, we're not complaining about what language was on the forms. We're complaining about what language was not on the forms. Because the the, the forms state conclusions. Okay, great. What's your best case for that point? I get the point. I think it's a good point. What's the best case that says that's the way to think about it? Um, I would say the Transco is a probably the best case that says you can't just make generalized conclusions. You have to have particularized um, claim or particularized factors about why you committed fraud or why you should be otherwise ineligible for benefits. And and um, Transco specifically said things like the employee is uh, not qualified or let me see if I can. And the, the, the other thing about clearly established is to think through and, you know, give a response is this is um, this is Matthews versus Eldred's balancing. And, and I've written some decisions where I say you can't get rid of these cases on motion to dismiss because you just don't know what's going to happen. But it's also very hard. I think it becomes quite a significant issue at summary judgment, figuring out what clearly established means in that setting, because it is balancing, and you got to figure out what the competing sides of the balance are. And so that, in other words, makes it, I think, clear that at summary judgment, it's it's kind of ripe to look at clearly established afresh. That I I agree with your honor, and I think that's the that's the law. But in this case, these these forms were so bare bones that no reasonable person could look at them and think this would give somebody notice of what our fraud allegations are. No reasonable official could do that. There's, there's, there's just nothing specific about any of these questionnaires or fraud determinations that put a person on notice of what they did wrong. And so they, how can they rebut these claims, especially at the predetermination stage when you don't even get a hearing? You just, you only can just write in. And if you don't, if you're not informed specifically what you allegedly do, did wrong, how are you supposed to respond to that? 
especially on this questionnaire that just has these multiple choice answers that are presumably nonsensical. So I would agree with you. I wonder if our prior opinion had the case in mind of somebody who is actually currently receiving benefits and was given one of these forms. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Of somebody who um, was currently um, receiving unemployment benefits was giving, given this form and on the basis of the first form alone lost those benefits. So the only process they received before losing benefits was the, the fraud questionnaire. But that's that could be what our opinion was thinking might be clearly established that you have a clearly established right to a pre-deprivation hearing. It just strikes me as none of the four plaintiffs in this case fit that factual scenario because they were all um, already ineligible for the benefits because their benefit period had already expired and they were and the, the agency was just looking back. So I think you would have to actually ask when was the deprivation here and it was much later in time. It wasn't that classic case of somebody who's actually receiving benefits, um, fails to f or fills out the questionnaire wrongly, and then loses benefits. Don't we have to look at all the process they received until there was an actual deprivation, whether it was the taking of the tax funds for the one plaintiff or the denial of future benefits when they reapplied? Well, Your Honor, the notice has to be sufficient at every stage of the proceeding. I think that what Your Honor is alluding to what might go more to the question of damages. When are damages essentially cut well, off? When would you say there was a deprivation of property here? Well, certainly when the um, UIA said you're not eligible for any more benefits. When they made that determination. But why? Because they had already received all the, they were ineligible for benefits for a reason totally unrelated to this fraud determination that they had, they had just had, the benefits had already expired and the agency was just doing a post hoc review of prior cases. Well, with regard to um, one of the plans, I think it was Mendick. She, after the initial jobs that she had that she had found to commit fraud, she had got a new job, requalified for benefits, then got terminated from that new job and applied for benefits, and they said, you're not eligible because... Well, I would agree with you that that... So that would be the deprivation for her, right? The deprivation would be when she was denied future benefits because she became eligible again, and then this thing actually finally kicked in. But when, they, but when the determinations informed the plaintiffs that they're no longer eligible for benefits, then that would dissuade them from applying for benefits. They've just been told they're ineligible. So I think it happens when that determination is made. But why, why would the fact that it dissuades them from applying be the deprivation of property? The reason, the reason I think this might be significant is because um, what came with the, the fraud determination was a right to a hearing. And so they would have had a right to a hearing before any deprivation of property occurred. They didn't exercise that right. Uh, you could argue that it was because of a lack of notice or whatnot. But under the facts of this case, they had a right to a hearing before um, any deprivation occurred. Well, 
And our prior case, our prior case of what was clearly established is you have a right to a hearing before the deprivation. And I'm just saying, as a matter of fact, what happened here is they had, they were eligible for hearings before their deprivations happened. I'm not sure I agree with you, Your Honor, because the determination says you're not eligible for benefits. Now, you can appeal in 30 days, but during that 30-day period, you're ineligible for your benefits. But they were ineligible anyways. That's the point. There was no deprivation during those 30 days of anything. The deprivation on the facts of these cases were the taking of the tax returns or years later when they reapplied and they were denied on the basis of this finding. But during that time, they could have received a hearing. But, Your Honor, due process protects also against the government's denying you a fair hearing, whether or not the deprivation was legitimate or not. If you didn't get process, you still have a claim. Now, you can't claim like the damages you would for if they wrongfully terminated your benefits and you were entitled to, say, 10 weeks of benefits. You might not get that because you weren't eligible for those 10 weeks. But due process still recognizes a claim for being treated unfairly by the government, whether or not the deprivation is in the end rightful or not. So certainly those plaintiffs have that deprivation. They were denied due process. They were denied the fair treatment of their government. What's the best fact evidence that shows Moffitt Massey participated in this? Right? Because you would agree there's no supervisory liability. So what's your best shot on that one that shows she actually participated? Well, she was informed numerous times by Mr. Geske that... Tell me what you mean by that because she says no to that and he doesn't ever say... He's specific about individuals to whom he spoke. He doesn't mention her. So how is it that you would say he alerted her? Well, I think there's a question... Just tell me why I'm wrong. Just tell me the site. I think there's a question of fact whether he alerted her or not. I don't think he ever denied alerting her. He said, I informed at the beginning of the process and I informed later when the things started going wrong. Okay, so tell me... Just tell me what the nature of your argument is. Is the nature of your argument that he did spell out some people to whom he spoke and then he said... And then at other points he said, I spoke to persons. And you're saying it's the persons that allows you to say that's the fact dispute? I think it could be a question of fact, yes. I mean, if he doesn't deny that he... If he doesn't specifically deny that he... Was he asked that specific question? I can't remember. I don't believe so. I didn't do his deposition, but I don't believe he was. Okay, well, if she says he didn't speak to me, he spells out usually the people to whom he did speak. I don't understand why there's a fact dispute. I mean, you're using the word person or whatever the word is to, I guess, cover anyone in the department. That seems... Well, it's also... I think that's a material fact dispute. It's also, Your Honor, that Ms. Moffitt-Massey did say she was aware of the problems with the notice requirements when she assumed the directorship. She was aware of the problems in 2013 before she took over. So she's aware of it. And once she becomes the director, she has a duty to correct it when she's aware of these problems. And 
she also just can't willfully ignore these types of problems that are systemic and so wide-ranging. There's, there's Auditor General reports. There's letters from the Department of Labor. There's an incredible media crush that, that are covering this, this situation where upwards of 40,000 people were wrongfully accused of fraud. Wasn't there a specific process for changing the forms and... I just didn't think she was involved in that, and I didn't. I don't know the testimony that says you need to trigger this process. Well, I, I think the Department of Labor informed us of multiple times of the problems with the forms, and she said she disagreed with them and said there's no problem with it. And the forms are so inadequate; they're so bare bones, and that she. She has to know it. I mean, she approved the forms. It's it's actually stamped on the forms that it's approved by. Well, isn't the governor's name, the statute that is used to, I mean, that would create supervisory liability if the test is whether a person's name is on it, right? I mean, if the governor's name is on certain types of things, which is not unusual in government, you're not going to say that always makes the governor liable, right? I mean, that no, would create not. supervisory liability. But it, but somebody has to approve that this form, it's, it lists the statute, and somebody has to approve that this form complies with the, the statute, which includes notice requirements. And she's the one that approves that. The statute can't approve the form. This, you know, the statute can't determine whether the form's in compliance with it. So somebody has to approve it, and in this case, it's Ms. Moffat Massey. And there were there's testimony that there are weekly and biweekly meetings with her, and there's all kinds of problems with the rollout of this MITA system, with the ongoing implementation, and she's she's in charge, and she's got to be aware of these problems. And she can't just stick her head in the sand and pretend nothing is going on when she's the director. And she's she's the one that so you're just making a buck stops here supervisory liability argument. That's that's what I thought we were supposed to be mindful of. But Your Honor, she's the one that has the power to change it. Nobody else does. And then she's a, she's gets informed of is that, it. Is that right? I thought there was a specific process for changing the forms. That, she, that was my earlier question, and it didn't start with her. It didn't start with her, but it ends with her. Okay, fine. If it didn't start, she wouldn't get to her. Oh, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I, did, I didn't understand your question. Right, but the people did bring to her attention the problems. So I don't... And your best evidence on that is Geske, who never mentions her by name. My best evidence I have is Geske, the Department of Labor letters and the Auditor General audits that she's informed of these problems and then instead of doing anything about it she doubles down as the lower court said and states well that's not my uh, that's not my understanding of these laws and I'm going to continue to do it so she's she's fully aware of the problems she has the pro the power to change anything the only one with the power to change it, and she refuses to do it and, and keeps insisting that what she's doing is right, despite all the evidence, all the information that she has, that there are severe problems. 
time is up unless the court has any other questions. I think we're good. Thank you so much. Thank you, Your Honors. All right, Mr. Hawkins. Thank you very much, Your Honors. I'd like to begin by, I think, maybe circling back to a question that uh, Judge Murphy asked, and, and I think maybe became clearer to me what you were asking based on some questions to my opponent as far as the previous opinion, you know, from this court and what was, you know, plausibly alleged. And I, and I think there, if the allegation was that the questionnaire or the determination in and of itself deprived me of property, and therefore because they alleged that that lacked you know, due process that that was enough to go forward. So what would have happened in the interim, of course, is uh, discovery, and I think even the district court concluded as much, or um, if they didn't, they, they got it wrong, that neither one of those, consti- those were pre-deprivation forms. Neither one of those deprived um, any of these plaintiffs of property. Um, so that was in the original complaint, the idea that someone's getting unemployment benefits and suddenly they're pulled away in fewer than six months. I think that that's my, my recollection is correct, or at least that's maybe how the, the previous opinion looked at it. It's like they've alleged that these forms deprive them of property without sufficient notice. We now know that that's not true. Discovery you know, has shown that, that as you mentioned, they say right in there. If, if you don't protest, what, what, don't do, what do you do? Let's just say that's totally right. Let's say that was in the original complaint. That's say it's a fair way to read the opinion. What do you say to his point that, well, gee, the way this really works is you, it's kind of rolling and it, it may be they didn't yank unemployment benefits in the middle of a six-month period, but the norm is people keep reapplying. It's understood you'll keep getting it and that these forms kind of do operate in in the way of pulling stuff away. I mean, again, that may be I think that's application. what he's trying to say. I think the discovery bore that out or showed that to be accurate, right? As you mentioned, they received full benefit. It was, it was only later that, that the agency tried to get that money back. With respect to uh, effect on a future claim, um, a claimant's going to have to prove their eligibility on that claim that could have um, it could involve issues totally unrelated to this. Maybe they didn't uh, earn sufficient wages within the previous year to establish what's called a, a benefit year. So it's it's somewhat speculative to say that that this could uh, could deprive them of any benefits in the future. I did want to talk too about uh, Transco because I believe I heard plaintiffs say that was uh, their best case. It's true that this court said that simply stating big billing irregularities was insufficient, but the important context there was that that. Um, company had several contracts over several years in several different states, and the court said that the notice did not say which contract had the irregularities or gave approximate dates of the missed billings. Here, all of these forms, the questionnaire and the determinations, include the specific employer involved, the specific claim number involved, the benefit year involved, and relevant dates or weeks at issue. So if the best case is Transco, I think there are uh, striking differences um, in these uh, forms that specifically include and address the shortcomings um, in Transco. I think also another one would be uh, City of Wyoming. Uh, Judge Sutton, you talked about notice having to um, alert people, provide alarm bell topics to give them an indication that um, this is serious. You know, if you want to protest this, here's how you do it. We have all of those uh, present here. And if I may go ahead. Okay, the last point, just because it was brought up about um, personal involvement, I think the the record is clear 
that Moffitt Massey and Geske were not involved in the design or implementation of Midas, and that I do believe that the attempt here is to hold them liable based on where they fall in an org chart. As this Court is well aware, that is not a sufficient basis to impose liability, and we would ask that the Court reverse and grant them qualified immunity. Thanks to both of you for your helpful briefs and arguments. We appreciate them. The case will be submitted, and the clerk may call the next case.